John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1430.IS1426, certificate number 51410. The Whole Earth Catalog. It's another entry in the long history of omnibus entries that seem oddly to focus on the period between when I was born and when you and I graduated from high school. Yeah, isn't that funny that that was kind of the... the Absolute peak the of history. The meridian of history from <laughs> yeah. which all things recede in either direction. It is. It is strange that history seems to have peaked in 1977. Somebody was complaining on the uh, website about how all the Alex Trebek obituaries didn't mention Art Fleming. So, right, so original I, host of Jeopardy. Of the 60s version. So I assume this is a, uh, a, a baby boomer annoyed about the Fleming erasure. And I, I went back and I looked at some of Fleming's obituaries and they all say, even though, you know, he died in the 90s when Alex had now been hosting Jeopardy for longer than him. Even though Alex Trebek has now hosted his show for over a decade, history will always remember Art Fleming as the definitive Jeopardy host. You know, and this is just the certainty that my generation's perspective is the correct and immutable one right? that uh, rarely ages well. It's funny because I remember a time when Alex Trebek seemed like the new guy on Jeopardy and and even like, like a placeholder host. Yeah, he was very young. He was unconventional because of the curly hair, the mustache, the, mustache. the Canadian accent. And he had just done, he was just some kind of replacement player. He had just done some goofy daytime game shows. And people really were like, we could have had Art Fleming and we get this guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and he, he kind of grew into it. It, it. it affected my feeling about Alex Trebek all the years because I always had that feeling that you have when when you get a, a you know, a baseball player comes in halfway through the season. It's a little, that, that feeling of um, Charlie, uh, Charlie McIntyre will never be uh, as important as Frank Burns. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, wait, Charlie McIntyre, you're just making things up. <laughs> Winchester. <laughs> Charles Winchester the third. It's true. It just depends on when you start watching the TV show or when you start watching the Bond movies. Like you just assume that's the correct way of things. Right. Then there were these weird old ones that matter less. And eventually, oh my Lord, Pierce Brosnan, you know, like you're. I still can't even believe that Pierce Brosnan was 
was Bond. But you know what? There's a whole generation for whom those are definitive. I know. I've 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 read some of that online. People are like, "There's never been a better Bond." And the the real apogee of this is the is that that's not the word, whatever the apex apotheosis. of this, apotheosis, the apotheosis of this, the <laughs> the apostasy of this is uh, prequel people, people you know, kids who just think the Star Wars prequels are the ultimate in Star Wars films. Our uh, our Twitter friend Joe Rendozo was online uh, last night saying, I'm, we're re-watching the prequels here in the house, and they're not as bad as as they're made out to be. And I was thinking... You know what? Half of that sounds is true. They're exactly as bad as they're portrayed. They're, they're worse. But that is the perspective of someone who... People who were formed by a certain kind of Star Wars movie right. and then had to watch a certain different kind. And if right. if you and I were five years old watching the 90s ones. No, Misa think that they are bad <laughs> even if you've never seen them before. Misa think they are deep papoodoo. <laughs> do you remember a time when, or do you remember the idea of the internet as a utopian place? A, a, a place that was non-commercial sure and not and with very little commercial potential a place that was primarily going to be uh like a communal global futuristic it's not utopia. it's not corporate man like they can't control us here this is cyberspace where everybody can just put up their own pages and you know, share our own material, and I mean, it's funny. I guess I don't really remember when I changed, but that was always kind of my default idea of the internet because that was maybe my first five to ten years of it. And I mean, thinking about when it changed, I mean, you surely can trace back from where we are now to a into the mists of time to remember when it was less so. I mean, I, I left for a two year LDS mission in the early nineties when, you know, and, and my mission 92, 93 to 95 exactly spanned the World Wide web's invention. So I left a world where if you knew what you were doing, you could talk about X files episodes in Usenet news groups. And this was fantastic and find the complete lyrics of whatever album you wanted you know what? What an ama- how do how do people not know about this? Right. Um, I just have to dig into the University of Minnesota's web servers and look at this great stuff. And then I came home to a world where McDonald's had a website with a graphic interface. You know, and that was a little bit shocking. I was like, wait, they put a graphic interface on on the internet? And yes, well, what's that for? And somebody, I think somebody showed me the McDonald's website, and I was like, oh, so it's just ads now? And I, I almost couldn't. And I guess that was my first disillusionment. But still, the fact that, you know, Yahoo would just, you you would look something up and you would find 20 amazing fan pages about whatever it is and or how to do the thing or, uh, you know, answering your questions about who the artist was or whatever. Um, That seems like it persisted into the Google era. And the whole Google idea that, you know, you know, we're not evil. We actually will solve problems by giving everyone information. Right. You know, like... If people could just go on Google Earth and see, you know, if people in North Korea could really see what life was like, or if people in the West could really see that Tehran's a big modern metropolis, you know, all these conflicts would just fall away through the pure power of unfiltered information, which I don't know. Maybe there's something to that. I mean, in a, in a way, the the great 
evil monetization of the internet is extremely recent phenomenon. I mean, Twitter had no uh, profit-making capacity in in its early days. There weren't ads. There wasn't any way to monetize all those people making jokes. Facebook didn't have ads. Google didn't. I mean, none of that stuff seemed to be about tracking and monetizing uh, users. It was even recently things still seem to be formed in a, out of a culture of, um, tool, tool making and tool use with, with, with utopian rather than commercial. Here's a useful thing. I made this thing where you can search the complete Shakespeare now or yeah. Hey community, you know, check out my instructional videos about how to do this to a cabinet. You know, there was, there was a lot more of that. When we put, and I think you still see that on YouTube in the maker community, Mm -hmm. but all of those makers, the only way they're making a living is by, by YouTube using their, their ad model to, to make money. When we first, when the long winners first had a website built, our friend Merlin Mann offered to make us a website. And I remember clearly now apocryphally saying, why would a band possibly want a website? And that was in 2001. I remember saying that about McDonald's. Yeah. They sell hamburgers. They don't need to be on this thing. I used to get X-Files and Star Trek The Next Generation episode summaries. But there's a, in the, in now the grand historical project of building the legend of the internet and of telling and retelling the stories of the early days of the internet, we've all heard and uh, heard to the point that it has become kind of a, almost a comic book character about these San Francisco Stanford grads who were coming out of a hippie, uh, a hippie culture and, uh, and a, a kind of libertarian culture before libertarianism took on its neoconservative notions, you know, yeah. a kind of, uh, the back to the land movement of the sixties and seventies produced this generation of, you know, kind of bearded, bespeckled, sweatered. They are bespeckled. They're also bespectacled. And they're bespectacled, but also bespeckled <laughs> Both. with, uh, with, with, uh, with all manner of you know, blue spots because they're half toed. And also like maybe little bits of Kit Kat in their beard. Kit Kat in the beard. Uh, if you think about all the internet pioneers and computer pioneers, I mean, that famous picture of uh, of Microsoft in the 70s where Paul Allen and, I mean, Bill Gates is the only one without a beard. They do not look the like, ladies. they don't look like NASA engineers. They don't look like JPL engineers. They look like uh, basement hobbyists. Yeah. Or, and Farmhouse and hobbyists. Farmhouse hobbyists, yeah. right. Guy, uh, people that would be making... Um, a butter with a churn <laughs> and stop churning. We got to take the picture. What's funny is that the, that those worlds um, really were not just related, but, um, but a lot of the internet and computer personal computer uh, pioneers really were coming from the same place that the, uh, that the butter churn, makers and the home home beer brewers were coming from. I wonder I mean, if the utopian idea came from fiction. Like uh like we know what um 
these virtual communal spaces, what the purpose they serve in, you know, cyberpunk novels or whatever. I mean, I guess cyberpunk wasn't a thing yet, but, uh, you know, they saw the futuristic potential of digital and virtual space and, you know, thought that they could make it come true. It's funny. We talked just recently on the, um, on the cottage core episode about the kind of, uh, the evolution of that, of cottage core as an extension of art nouveau and the, paradoxical idea that you could go back to an earlier form, but that that would be a, uh, that would be a futuristic movement. That, so, that's Yeah. That's the future. We're, this is how we advance humankind. Yeah. And it's, and the, the libertarian aspect of it is, I mean, the, I'm sorry, the pre-conservative libertarianism was uh, played into it. The, the, the individual is, um, the individual and the individual's relationship to community can be defined, it's almost like Lego, can be defined by a philosophy that incorporates the architecture, that incorporates the production of food, um, that that all those things are political in ways that they hadn't, they hadn't previously been identified as political. And a lot of it is from Marx, right? That if you control... The means of production, and that that includes, you know, if you includes if, your beehives. Yeah, if you're a truck farmer, right? You are you're you're much closer to being um, liberated from the from your um, capital from capital. Your bosses. That's right. Uh, Except for the bees, the bees are still your bosses. The bees, the bees. You gotta you gotta liberate the honey. <laughs> that's the means of production, right there. That's right. Well, the, yeah, that's right. The bees are the bees will always be your slaves. No, that's not what you were saying. Are they your masters or your slaves? <laughs> the queen is your master. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of this tradition uh, emanating from cottage core through that through that period. A man by the name of Bolton Hall that we talked about on that episode remind uh, me was what really was advocating um, not as a component of that uh, growing your own food, making your own you know, uh, like a, like a back to the land kind of simplicity, even at the beginning of the century. And that was given a real boost by the victory garden era during world war two. There were things were so rationed, uh, and people in, in Europe and the United States found that they were, uh, that they were kind of, they were not so far away from growing your own food as we are. Uh, in our culture, but, but you, you know, you were converting your lawn and your garden into vegetable gardens and, and, um, I guess I've never understood that about references to victory gardens. Yeah. Isn't that a generation that would have had a backyard garden anyway? I guess the idea is you dig up your lawn. Well, and, and the whole 20th century story of mechanization and modernization and labor saving devices was to move away from a truck garden toward a supermarket and a refrigerator, you know, to to not have to can anymore because you could buy canned goods. I guess be, having grown up in my generation, I, f- I was kind of on the downward side of it where it was totally common for everybody to have a backyard vegetable garden because we'd been influenced by this kind of back-to-the-land kind of thinking. Yeah, and the, the tying it up, like 
when my mother was a, a child and they grew their own food, there wasn't any association of virtue yeah, with it. There was no option. It, it, it was just what you this did. Is right? how you, this is how you get tomatoes. My mom said that she had never eaten a good cut of meat until she went to college because her grandfather, although they had livestock, when they slaughtered the animals, they sold all the good meat because- She, she, they, ate, she ate stew meat and liver. Yeah, they didn't. They, oh, she loves liver to this day. They didn't, She, her family didn't think that the luxurious meat was something they could afford to keep from their own animals. They, they sold all the, all the good meat for that money. Maybe that was true. Maybe that's how the budget worked. Whereas the back to the land movement, there was always, and this, and Victory Garden emphasized this, but I don't think it was the source of it. There's an ideology. Yeah. There. The idea of growing it at home is, is, um, is now a virtuous act. And it's not quite the same as the Victory Garden propaganda, but it, you know, it, it, in both cases, it's good for America, you right. know, the, the, if we do this. This is how our society should be. In one case, it's a patriotic appeal. In the other, it's, uh, yeah, it's more of a utopian vision. Well, and the, the utopianism started to come into it as this uh, alienation from the land got more and more prevalent during the, uh, the suburban era or the mid-century, people leaving... Um, they left the farms for the big city, and then they left the city for the planned communities. You're, of the yeah, suburbs. you're not a city person or a country person anymore. You're someplace without the virtues of either. Yeah, and you're and although you have an acre, it's all grass. You know, it's uh, and and that's an that's an omnibus entry too. You've you've chosen kind of an arbitrary vision of prosperity that actually has robbed you of a lot of the benefits of urban life, the culture, the walkability, the neighbors. And a lot of the benefits of rural life, no communal with no communion with nature. Right. And if you think about the cities, even in 1920, you would have had produce. You would have bought produce in a little store, you know, a bodega in your in in your neighborhood. And that produce would have come from a truck farm that would have been brought into the city, you know, in uh, within a day or two of when you buy it. Whereas in suburbia, everything's been condensed and supermarketed and canned and and this is the appeal of of that era convenience right you're going to drink tang and it's going to have nine essential vitamins and iron uh so living in suburbia even though you're in sight of farms you're you're estranged from them by by three or four different uh iterations it almost seems like there's something of that generation and i'm i'm close enough to kind of have this the shade of association that it's a little bit unhygienic to get something out of the oh, dirt and eat it. Dirt and there's, poop on there, it. There's nice frozen and canned versions on this neat shelf with calming music playing. That's how humans eat. Right. Why would you eat a fresh green bean yeah. when you could have delicious canned green beans, everyone's favorite dish? I actually kind of do like canned green beans. Oh, I know you would. You like jello salad. I, well, I like the way they kind of mush. I like the kind of the... They have nothing in common with actual crunchy green beans. Just uh, you only lived in Utah for a couple of years, but the culture got in you so strong. No, I mean this is growing up in Seattle in the seventies too. You got to oh, eat your canned green beans. I hated canned green beans so much. Just the smell of them. Even thinking about the smell of them. It's true that the smell and taste have nothing to do with uh, fresh green beans. I don't know where no, it comes from. No, a fresh green bean I'll love. I'll eat a fresh green bean all day. But a canned green bean? Oh, I don't know. It's it's, it's trauma from my childhood. They're two different foods for sure. But as as you take all of this into the '60s, and you know this this podcast loves nothing more than to laud the experience of boomers 
and uh, and everything that encompasses They really that. are heroes. Yeah, they are. The way they had that youthful idealism, but then managed to temper it yeah. with the realism of just wanting to have big trucks mm-hmm. and nice retirement plans and a healthy environment, and then to make sure no one else had that. Well, you, you, you've got to admire their... Um, got to admire their... Uh, what? I don't know. Grace? <laughs> Grit. <laughs> if you think about... How many uh, children are being harvested for their adrenochrome by Tom Hanks and Hillary Clinton? And it's really only the boomers that stand between them and world domination. I'm grateful. In the 60s, all of that alienation, uh, the, the suburban alienation and the, and the, you know, the, the gray-suited man and the corporate culture and the Vietnam War – you're just naming things now. <laughs> I'm basically, it's a Billy Joel song. You're the credits to some PBS uh, look back at the decade. Uh, collided against the the Silent Spring, the dawning of the environmental movement. And that also played a big role in a kind of growing understanding that this estrangement from, from nature was not just chemically toxic, but spiritually toxic. And that it added a whole other level of virtue to the idea of growing food yourself back to the land. Um, yeah, I never thought of how the ammunition of all that pesticide stuff would really help. Like, of course, this is bad for the soul. Like, look at what it's doing to look at what it's doing to the to the chemicals. You know, like you, this is evidence that it's yeah. corrosive. Yeah, it was it was a kind of perfect storm that we kind of looking at it from now. It's easy to look at, at at events in the 60s kind of siloed. You know, you see like, oh, well, Motown and soul music was happening over here, but, you know, oh, Anti-war stuff, yeah. Yeah, and Vietnam and civil rights. and But all of that was happening. I mean, sometimes I've, I think I've talked about this before. If you if you pull up a week-by-week week calendar of events of, say, 1965 and just look at from one week to the next, what was happening from day to day. And it's all of this stuff is, it was such a, um, such a dramatic period. This is just the density of it. The it's- density. It's just like, oh, this incredible record by the Supremes came out. And the next day, like the DNA was discovered. <laughs> yeah. And then the day after that, like, uh, uh, like a mercury capsule orbited the, I mean, it's just like, such an intense period. It does make you wonder if our far future audience is thinking the same thing about, is it an illusion that our time seems similarly dense or like, is somebody going to be looking at 2020 being like, you are not going to believe what happened like a week apart. I don't think so. And I think it's because of the collision of technology and social um, upheaval. You know, there, there was something very, there was a moment when we as modern people transitioned from rural society to urban society. There was a moment when jet travel uh, it, like changed the world forever, when we were about to go into space, when computers were first being developed. I mean, all of this did happen only once. Hmm. And there isn't an equivalent in 2020 because... Lots of things are happening, but they're dumb. They're all dumb. And they're all, you know, like... 50 things can happen on the internet, but it's just people bickering. It's not. It'll be just like us looking back at, wow, the Spanish flu and, and, uh, and world war one happened to, you know, 
they didn't leave a they didn't leave a mark. Yeah, and even even incredible moments in history prior to the mid twentieth century. If you think about the late nineteenth century, the age of invention, when all this stuff, you know, all of a sudden you've got light bulbs and cars and airplanes. Um, that's all. That was also a very intense and brief explosion. But I don't think there's anything that can compare. And I mean, I hate to say this because it does sound like a time life tagline. But this, the 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 rapid change and the the hourly upheaval and innovation that was happening during that period, that it could create so many movements coming out the other side of it, right? Like the back to the earth, back to earth movement, the um, the the natural food, the the organic food, uh, and do it yourself culture movements that came out of this period are. A footnote, if we're talking about like what the '60s sure. produced culture, there's bigger fish to fry because right. you've got all the Cold War stuff, all this tech stuff, all the uh, you know, the, all the racial and human rights issues, the just globalization as a not just economically, but as you're saying, I mean, Google Earth lets me look down into the backyards of Tehran, um, and that all you know, and 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 in in a big way. Their um, their genesis did happen. A, a lot of these ideas, their their genesis was intermingled. Um, the the computer stuff that we're experiencing now, the, you know, the, the the internet and the universe of it, really was the product of um, kind of discrete groups of people. A lot of times with utopian values, um, coming out of MIT and Stanford, you know, computers weren't invented everywhere at once. They were, and and the initial inventors of of the hardware were also um, were also trying to imprint onto that stuff values of how it would be used. Here's what it's going to do: it, expectations of of the worlds they were going to create. Didn't they know it was just going to make uh, you know plotting arcs for? Bombs and ammunition? Like, isn't that what? Uh, that's they, where the money came from. God, they worked so hard to to restrict it, to to not let it be used for that. I yeah. mean, there were so many people in that early era that wanted nothing less than for their for their beautiful computers to get corrupted by the Defense Department. Um, it's just that can't hold out forever. Weirdly, LSD plays a profound role in all of this. And it's impossible for me to know, looking back, is this a byproduct of LSD <laughs> or was LSD? Um, if, if so, that would suggest that our main problem today is that we're not using enough LSD. Well, and I, you if know, we I were think just dropping more acid. <laughs> there are people that could make maybe an eloquent case for that. LSD had during the mid sixties, this, mind-opening um, effect on people that's been described many times in many ways, um, that LSD would expand your consciousness. And if you, take, if you take a certain group of people that are predisposed to be, um, to be aware of their consciousness, to be seeking to expand it, MIT and Stanford graduates, um, 
and you put them in this in this cauldron where you have all these things happening that aren't necessarily connected the um the the awareness of pollution and pesticides the the awareness of suburban estrangement the awareness of a military industrial complex which had only just been given a name by Eisenhower just a few years prior but the awareness that um in the in the 60s a kind of dawning sense that these government institutions that were there ostensibly to protect us and to um they're just unimpeachable. You don't even. Yeah, the, you, you wouldn't even think to question their per, their purposes or motives. Suddenly, an awareness that wait a minute the the CIA is involving us in all these wars around the world where we have no business, and the FBI is keeping files on. They might have their own agendas that do not align with mine as right, a citizen. Right. That 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 all of this awareness happening kind of in a in coffee shops and in universities. And then you add in the element of that 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 exactly the people that were kind of considering these ideas also were the people at the forefront of experimenting with LSD. So I, I just heard this story for the first time yesterday in a documentary about the first time Jerry Garcia dropped acid. He said something basically like that. Like his first response was, I can't believe this was going on and they never told us. You know, his experience of, of whatever was happening inside his brain, like he interpreted that as there was this whole hidden understanding of the world and I didn't know. Like, it, it was very interesting to me that his take was kind of societal. And it's kind of a funny story, him being like, this was all going on and nobody ever told us. But the the uh, the result was him kind of thinking the society we see is not the real story. Well, and that's the thing about it, right? You take, and we... T- talked about this in a different context during the MK Ultra episode but the effect of of taking LSD is very much um like feeling like you're suddenly able to see behind the curtain right the Aldous Huxley book Doors of Perception right i've i've gone through the door now i have clarity but but it's very it's very understandable how someone might think might have the that first impression be that this room has always been here and but what if QAnon starts dropping acid? Well, I know. Let's hope. We finally. <laughs> the thing about that, about walking through that door is that you don't realize in those early days that you're the pioneer. You're the first one through the door because it feels so real on the other side. It feels, and then, and that's why Eastern mysticism became so popular with that crowd because you can find a lot of analogs between the experience of having taken LSD and gone through the curtain and, and having, that's the historical precedent. Others have others have done this and have kind of figured out the rules. Yeah, but in the in Eastern religion, it is that I sat uh, cross-legged and you know and held my arm in the air for fifty years. I just had to be sit under this tree for a few months, and then I had the same sort of you know I could describe the same kind of revelation. And if you don't want to sit under a tree, now there's chemicals. Now there are these chemicals, and uh, that that gets you there faster, and and in a way like more. Well, more intentionally, but in a, with a different intention, right? Like this is a place that we can visit and having visited, bring those lessons back and still be living in the modern world. Um, our story 
begins with uh, an acid trip that a man named Stuart Brand took in the mid-60s. Um, he was a Stanford grad from 1960, so a, a very early boomer, like a grown-up grown up boomer, um, who joined the Army like a lot of people did in, in 1960. Seemed like a good time to join the army pre-Vietnam, post-Korea. Like that's what I, that's what they were all saying. Hey, this is pre-Vietnam. Yeah, get I in sh- there. I should join the army. Learn some science. Um, and he was, you know, kind of a, a like a Bay Area person who was adjacent to the Mary Pranksters culture. Um, Bef- post, you know, post beat kind of a yeah, just sort of very early in there, and was was one of the people that was uh, part of the LSD experiments when LSD was still legal before it had become a controlled substance when it was still uh, popularly approached as you know is this a new is this a new door or is this something that here's a new scientifico hyphen religious. Uh- Almost like a maybe it would be equivalent today of some kind of health fad yeah. or something. It didn't have any kind of specter of illegality or, or unhealth. Right. It was the, the, it was what Harvard kids were or Harvard you know professors were doing. Timothy Leary was a, a respectable. The, the, the professor equivalent the today might be yoga or something. Honestly. Yeah. Or this or that that um, that what was that drug that came out a couple of years ago? Um, it was called, what was the, what, what was Viagra? No, what was the, that? That That's an, an analogous. No. What was the movie with, um, Oh, Matt the- Damon, Elysium. This, this drug called Elysium came out a few years ago that had like nine Nobel laureates on its board of directors. And they had apparently developed, uh, or research this chemical and realize that it was the ultimate antioxidant and it would replenish your cells and make you a, make you a superhuman that never died. And they, they're selling this stuff for 50 bucks a, a bag. Um, and all the tech people, all the Silicon Valley people that I know are all taking Elysium because it's another one of these, it's just like getting a blood transfusion um, or, or drinking adrenochrome, but it's actually like, like this, um, does it work? Or is super it just, fashionable. Is it just like a juice cleanse, or lifelong it, drug, or does it actually work? Well, I don't know if you can say that it works. And there's there are people that push back against it now, saying, you know, it's exactly what it does is it it exactly fuels the cells that cause cancer, uh, gives them you know new power. Mm. Uh, I don't think there's any research to that effect, so please don't sue me, makers of Elysium. Um, but. LSD, yeah, at the time was something that you that you might take as a smart person that was that was trying to really potentially in the mid sixties. I mean, if things had gone a different way, if if Richard Nixon had taken LSD during this period and said, "This is something we all need to do," well, I don't know why my Nixon is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> He's, uh, do, he's doing the V, he's, but he's like, the V's. my fingers are coming off my hands. Oh, why am I in a Southern accent? Thank you. You gave me my Nixon back. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, if the right people, if uh, by which I mean if establishment people had taken Henry LSD. Henry Kissinger. <laughs> but there's something, there's something intrinsically um, counterculture about the revelation that you would have that looking through a curtain, things are different. 
um, and things are not what they seem. I mean, that's not a thing that Nixon wants you to well, feel. Maybe somebody like Nixon is just going to have a bad trip and bomb Cambodia two years earlier. Right. Maybe that's what happened. Ken, I know we've talked about Mac Weldon stuff before and people hear about it on podcasts all the time because they are, uh, we're grateful for the uh, degree to which they use podcasts to advertise their product. But let me tell you, I am wearing my Mac Weldon pants right now. You know, you think of them as being an, uh, selling your your basics, your socks and underwear. Do but you mean pants in the British sense of underwear? Pantaloons? Are no. you telling me about your, your underwear? No, I mean the their... Um, you know, they have a selection of pants that you might wear outdoors that are sort of... Uh, if, if people ever go outdoors again. You know, they're like uh, various ones. They they feel like sweats or like uh, like pants that you would use to... to uh, that, are, that are sporty, but I wear them all the time and they are... Let me see your pants. Uh, they are... They fit great. They're slimming. Um my sister envied them so much that I bought her a pair for Christmas, even though Mack Weldon uh, advertises itself as a, as a company that really caters to uh, people who are going for a masculine look. They don't have like a girl section. Despite that, they, they, uh, you're wearing them? Uh, yes, that's right. But also <laughs> my sister swears by them. And so I just can't say enough about these pants. I've never tried the socks and the undies, but as I've said before, I love the shirts and the sweatshirts. I have a lot of the socks and underwear too, because I really dig them. So I I, uh, I recommend Mac Weldon products. They are, you know, they're they aren't uh, they're not what you would call J.C. Penny prices, but uh, but that quality, that extra money is really worth worth it in terms of some of the, some of the Mac Weldon stuff I've had I've had for years. They're high quality, and you can tell. You don't yeah, have you can. To, you can tell by the um, just the fabrics that they use. Um, like some of the high tech, you know, I have this, I have this Henley and I can tell it's some kind of space age thing that my cheaper yeah. tops are not. Also, you know, the, the whole whimsical sock phase has, uh, I think is increasingly sort of passing us by no more socks with. Well, you and I never wore socks with corgis or waffles. on. Yeah. Them. Right. To- toaster flying toasters, but they do have, uh, socks and underwear that, are, that have interesting patterns and colors. You know, they're not. They're not just dull black socks. They have uh, lots of cool stuff going on. Uh, I'm, but they're not whimsical. They're very serious. I know you love the loyalty program, which is like a kind of a frequent flyer thing where the more you spend, the more you save, yep, which is cool. It often feels like a thing that a company would use to rope you in, but really it's a significant discount. And yeah. I got the very first time I ordered for them, I had, fr- I had free shipping. I, I cleared the tier for free shipping. That's nice. For life, which is very cool. That's very nice. And you, there's nothing to lose by trying Mack Weldon out. Uh, if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they will refund it. It's a no questions asked guarantee. Nice. Although don't exploit that. Now don't keep ordering underwear under a series of aliases and fake accents pretending you dislike it. Yeah, they'll probably figure that out. You know, the Nordstrom company eventually told me that I couldn't keep bringing the same pair of boots back and using their unlimited... This was when I was in my early 20s and... I was trying to keep a pair of shoes on my feet. Even if Mack Weldon never tracks you down, you won't feel good That's about right. yourself. That's right. Just be, as a guarantee abuser. I'm still I'm still embarrassed and apologizing for doing that. For, for 20% off your first order, just visit MacWeldon.com slash omnibus and then enter promo code omnibus. That's MacWeldon.com slash omnibus. 
Promo code Omnibus for 20% off. Wow. Mac Weldon, reinventing men's basics. Stuart Brand had this moment, and it coincided with the space program's first ventures out far enough into space that they could take a photograph of the entire Earth in one frame. Isn't this funny that we have to explain this, that there was there were not pictures of the Earth from space? And the initial Mercury program... We just assume we're in a world where you can just get that because you see it in sci-fi movies, right. you know, space, space program photos that seem so old. No one had ever seen the Earth in its entirety. And... The Mercury program, we'd been spending people into orbit, astronauts been flying around for several years, but in close Earth orbit, there were, they couldn't see the whole Earth. No, it looks like you're in a plane, but a little higher. Yeah, or- at Edge of the atmosphere. Not really. If you, The flat earthers would tell you that that's all, that, <laughs> that all, you just get higher and higher above a flat plane. Right. But at some point, that's when the, that's when the test pilots get involved in the cover-up. That's right. That's right. This point, and we're talking about mid-1966, there were finally uh, satellites being sent out, and, and, uh, and the, the one, the primary one here, the Lunar Orbiter Number 1, went out, as the name suggests, to go around the moon, and on its way there was able to photograph the entire Earth. And there's the, the famous photograph of the earth from the moon. So the moon is in the foreground and the earth is, is very distant. Um, and it was sent, it was sent back via this kind of, um, they, they sent the picture in strips because they could only kind of send one because of the resolution. And the, basically they're faxing it back to earth. They like faxed it back to a earth. pixel at a time. And then, then the, then back at NASA, they had to reassemble these, grainy strips and and create the image. And I actually have the image. I, you've seen it because it used to hang in our old studio. Um, and I got it at the Boeing surplus one day. And it, I think it's one of the original framed uh, examples of that image that were given out to all the people that worked on the space program. And mine has the man's name on the back that that were, and I researched him and found him. You know, if you're my age, you just associate it with, you know, the big blue marble or something, you know, it just seems like it's always been there. This idea of the earth as a, as a blue ball. Well, so this notion, when the, when these first space photographs were taken of the earth, NASA didn't release them. They were secret, secret. And Stuart, they, they had to Photoshop out all the, yeah, all the, the Cthulhu's. Well, yeah. And all the, all the topless wives in the backyards of, of <laughs> Air Force generals, <laughs> suburban homes. That resolution is something else. Uh, Stuart Brand on, in the midst of this acid trip had this sudden realization that a picture of the earth, a single photograph of the earth could be a transformative public relations item, a transformative image that you could use to take around the globe, to, to disseminate around the globe, and that it would be just as you were saying about Google Maps and North Korea. It would be an image that would unite people's imaginations. We'd finally see that we're all passengers together That's here. That's it. The big blue marble in space. It's, uh, until then, another thing, you know, you, if you look at, uh, Fictional representations of the Earth from space in old-timey 
sci-fi or comic books or, or uh, movies, they never get the clouds right. Like the, it, like the, it often looks like the universal logo. They've got the continents and they've put it on a model, but nobody ever realized what the gestalt effect, gestalt effect of the clouds would be. Uh, because we had never actually seen it. We right. were just kind of imagining what the planet would look like. Right, right. And and the power of that image is profound. Like you say, we've grown up with it and But it's still it's still a it's still a yeah. Yeah. You have a very emotional reaction to it. You and do. at the time, the first time anyone had seen it, it really was um it really was powerful. And in in 1967 uh, a, a satellite called ATS-3 took this iconic picture, the one that you're thinking of, the big blue marble. And Stuart Brand made a very public effort to lobby NASA to release this photo and made, the, um, and made it clear that his intention was that this would be an, uh, like a, a peace flag, a, a, yeah. a, a global... A, in this time of anti-war, in this time of great pollution and civil unrest. It's a global symbol, but it's not ideological because it's right. just the Earth. Who could disagree with a, a picture of Earth? Right. This inspired Stuart Brand, um, who, you know, had been on, on course to be a, to be a kind of technologist and a, and a member of, you know, a a valuable member of the Bay Area community. And he suddenly started to think in in these holistic terms, the whole earth, and how to create, um, how to arrest the the progress that we were making toward a greater, a more polluted, warlike, divided, um, estranged world and how to, what the tools would be, uh, to, to make a, a more communal and holistic world. It's the same problem as today. It seems like the trends are going in the wrong direction. Like we need big solutions. What are those big solutions? And at the time they were small solutions in the sense of, um, act locally and then act locally. And this is the libertarianism is an interesting question here because, a lot of the back to the land ideas at first are very individualist, right? You are as the as the man and his wife and your pitchfork and your and your dungarees are going to venture out. You're going to find a little plot of land in Oregon and you're going to build a build a house for yourselves. It's very it's very uh, frontier. It's very or frontier. It's very. Uh, homesteady and and sort of uh it's not especially communal and the 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 initial impulse to do it is often one that's libertarian uh Stuart brand decided that he was going to uh with his wife start compiling the necessary tools to leave behind the, the, the kind of corrupted industrial era or age and, and begin a new sort of agrarian culture. And he was, and it was very utopian. He was not an anarchist. He was not a, um, he wasn't, 
it, it wasn't a movement founded in rage. It was a movement kind of founded in, in a belief that, and it wasn't necessarily anti-technological. It, it wasn't a, a movement toward. It's like primitivism. Primitivism. Not at all. It was. You know, because it embraced solar power. It was... We're going to harness these things. What are the tools that we can use to create a, uh, a better world? And so he had, he had a 1963 Dodge truck, and he filled it with some of these implements, you know, th- and, and, and he believed that books and essays were also tools. Right. So when you say tools, I mean, this does seem like kind of an acid trip idea, because even when you explain the, the goal behind it, I'm not sure I understand what the concrete steps would be. So these tools, some of them are like hoes and shovels. Yes. And some of them are knives and, uh, and packets of seeds, but some of them are manifestos and poems and descriptions of, um, best practices. And so he was trying to compile all these different things. You know, it wasn't just a, a set of things you could buy. A lot of them were things you could learn. And in them, uh, have a one-stop shop where you could, you know, you could go from being a suburban kid who didn't know how to do anything to being someone who had a much broader ability to create a, a like a, a worthwhile life. Is there an example where some kind of thought, uh, not warfare, but some kind of thought um, technology experiment, yeah, like this, has actually worked? For good, I mean, it's easy to think of the examples of, um, you know, online conspiracy theories turning literally one in three Americans crazy. You know, uh, so we know thought technology works. Yeah, well, I mean, postmodernism is a thought technology, right? Modernism is a thought technology, and a lot of those things they start in they start in weird places. You start with an architect who develops an architectural idea, but then it becomes a a way of life and a way of thinking. And then it becomes, you organize your other, the other information you process around it. Right. And then all of a sudden you've built Brasilia or Legos. I mean, you start with a, with a toy and then all of a sudden, and some of it is your, your reverse engineering intention, but some of it is you're realizing, oh wait, this is Waldorf thinking, or this is a, this is a school of, of thought that's bigger than just the thing I'm that where it started. It's just an element. And if you think about the effect that postmodernism has had on the way we conduct ourselves, um, and you think about, I mean, it, like, it isn't always a political ideology first. It's often something simple. And then that, that, that gradual realization, I think, that this is, this is a school of thought. Um, Maybe we just don't notice the ones that were successful because we avoided the dire consequences of not adopting them. Because they're the way we think. Yeah. And, um, and it's hard to examine the way you think and kind of see where it came from. And this is, a, this is kind of an interesting example of that. Eventually, he realized that he needed to put all of these things into a publication because just driving his truck around to Menlo Park and selling this stuff to, to the people at Hewlett Packard that had already smoked a joint – um, you know, it wasn't, th- th- there was too, there was more demand than, than he could accommodate. And so in the spirit of the time, right, he came up with some home type setting and put together a compilation, a, a, a compendium, an omnibus, if you will, <laughs> of all of the stuff that he 
had been compiling in this kind of um, exhaustive search for any tool that would be useful in creating a or in practicing a version of living. And and let me ask you this because you know I'm I'm remembering being a kid looking at the whole Earth catalog in a store and not being sure what I was looking at. That's right. Is um is it mostly is it original? I, I kind of remember it as being references to other references and texts and here you know here's an address to write away to to get these and here's a here's a place that'll sell you this and uh, here's another book about this that's good. It seemed like it was more of a, um, a bibliography almost than than full of original content. Like, does it? It doesn't really have chapters on. Here's my original essay on how to do this or that. So Stuart Brand describes it now, in retrospect, as kind of the first internet. And all those things you're describing are just hyperlinks that require yeah, that you put a stamp on a thing. <laughs> it's Yahoo with, yeah. uh, with a longer resp- response time. There were original essays. There, uh, I think a lot of uh, the originality was in juxtaposing different, you know, this tool with this essay, with this kind of manifesto. Uh, the juxtaposition then creates a kind of suggestion a suggestion uh, about how to proceed, what to do next. Uh, the, the book was divided into seven sections, the original Whole Earth Catalog, which, was, which came out in 68. Um, the seven sections were understanding whole systems. So whole Earth was, was an idea that the Earth was a system. And systems theory was also popular. And this is all, this all, a lot of this feeds into what became Silicon Valley theory. That there's kind of an engineering behind yeah. everything. So understanding whole systems. By the way, I, this did not occur to me until today. It never occurred to me as a kid, but whole earth is a very common biblical phrase. Oh. Like the King James Bible will often, I don't know what they're rendering in Hebrew, but they'll say, the God of the whole earth or the floodwaters covered the face of the whole earth. It's just often a way in biblical language to say everything, you know, God's domain. Right. So there's kind of a scriptural import to using it and, and then a funny juxtaposition by saying catalog, you know? Right. Exactly. And I think here's a list of everything that was, that was kind of hilarious. I think at the time. And I even remember thinking whole earth catalog was hilarious. I remember as a kid, like thinking it was false advertising, like, oh, this is going to be like the world almanac or something. It's going to have like a list of the tallest skyscrapers or something. And then right. I looked at it and I was like, what the hell? What, what, what am I even looking at? I think I think I looked at it and was like, the Montgomery Wards catalog has more stuff in it than this. What am I supposed to, composting toilet? There's not even a bra page. I don't want this. So understanding whole systems yes. was one section. Shelter and land use. Industry and craft. How to make stuff. Communications. Community. Nomadics. I don't even know what that would mean. Well, nomadics, you know. Lack of attachment to place, but how does that tie in with all the agriculture stuff? Well, you know, I feel like part of a whole system is that some people are road dogs. You've got options. Yeah. This system is complicated. Some people have bees and some people don't. Because because some, you know, one of the things that this is presenting itself or this movement presented itself as was as an antidote to uh, suburban conformity and cultural conformity. Prior to modernity, 
there were nomadic tribes and they seem to be doing just fine. Right. What have we done? So yeah, so therefore I'm going to I'm gonna to go to Marrakesh and <laughs> live there for three years. It has nothing to do with the hash, the easy availability of hash. And then the last section was learning. Is this Alexa called the last section is learning? Yeah. Uh, but here were the rules for how an how how something got listed in the catalog. Was it useful as a tool? And tool in the broadest sense. Was it relevant to independent education? So again, trying to break out of the conformity of what had become a conformist educating uh, education system. That's the idea of education that starts about then, which is just like we're just making cogs in a you were making gears in a machine man yeah, like that's right. it's just a self-perpetuating system like this if you were to reinvent education it wouldn't be like this and we still live in that world i we mean do. if you if you go anywhere you'll find someone telling you that the schools are just it's creating the, cogs it's the whole movement behind a lot of different kinds of charter school thinking you know that's why it's not really that's why that's an issue that crosses ideological lines because there's so many people that think Education could be anything but this. Right. This is arbitrary. That's right. Liberals and conservatives agree that education should be different than what it is. They just don't agree. It, it just stops there. On anything else. Yeah. Right. Um, third criteria, is it high quality or low cost? What is So a lot of things in the catalog were, were exemplified this kind of modern movement of like, these are the boots. These are the best. Ah, Boots. Interesting. So it's got it's kind of the beginning of our curated shopping experience. Because this this is something you still see on the internet is look, you only want to have to get one of these. Right. We've done the work. This is the one, and it's not even flashy. It's more like this is the one that lasts. The implication is always like this is the more soundly correctly designed one for your life. Right. Yeah, that kind of tool approach to consumerism is still totally with us on the internet. It is, and it's and it's and it derives from this, yeah. and it just kind of morphed because the consumerism became the the, you know what? Because in 1968 there was not a marketplace uh, that is dominated by super low cost, mass produced, imported. Crapola. Yeah. I mean, this was the era when if it said made in Japan, people were like, oh, made in Japan. Of course, yeah. now we think of them as the great craftsmen. Um, so something that was high quality. I mean, the presumption was that most of this stuff was made by hand in America. These are just the ones that are, you know, we've found the ones that are good, but also low cost didn't have the same connotation it has now. Um, right. That's good. You, you're a, you're a smart buyer. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily cheap. Uh, cheaply made. Yeah. It was, the, you know, these are the good values. This is the inexpensive. It's stuff. almost like a proto-consumer reports. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there was that element to it. Um, and then the the fourth criteria was, is it not already common knowledge? Ah, I see. Everybody else can tell you the stuff I wanted from my World Almanac. Right. But is this, this is everything else? Innovative thinking, innovative, I mean, you know, post-LSD, kind of immediately post-LSD, uh, are these like, are, is this going to help enlighten us? Yeah. And then finally, in the case of physical items, is it easily available by mail? Ah. The idea being that you should be able to send off some letters and get this material. Yeah. So the, um, it's funny, the U.S. Post Office is the backbone of all this. This is, this is what's going to deliver enlightenment and a better society and, uh, 
you know, a world that exists beyond the assumptions and curtains we have. Right, right. And thank God you, for the post office. You're going to run to your mailbox for yeah. the seeds, the the poems, whatever it is. Right, your your rural your rural mail, mailbox that you can put like a, a hog into. It'll be, it'll be a it'll be a basket of live chicks. That's really funny. Yeah, to, got- to think of the mail carrier as the delivery of um of uh, this kind of what improved hippie America. Yeah, right. I mean the 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 as the Kevin Costner movie teaches us, like the mail carrier <laughs> is the thing that glues us together. The thing about the whole Earth catalog, and this is especially interesting given. Uh, its presence in our lives as kids growing up in the seventies and eighties is that the whole earth catalog was never intended to be a, um, quarterly publication. The idea of it was that it would contain these resources. It's like, it's like the Bible. You just need this once. And then you have it and they would update it periodically when addresses change. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, the essays, the uh, the philosophy of it, you know, if you can't find this particular brand of hoe, it doesn't change the fact that this essay teaches you, you know, why you would need a hoe. Um, and I don't mean a rake, Ken. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, in fact, in 1972, the book won the National Book Award. Which is funny because who's publishing it? Just, just some little house, or yeah, it was published by uh, by the Portola Institution, <laughs> which seems uh, made up. Which is, you which, know, there are other books were not were not as widely. Uh, are we sure this isn't the front for the CIA? <laughs> it won the National Book Award because even in even in like B. Dalton in 1984, there was something a little kind of weird and unwholesome about the whole Earth catalog, where you can kind of tell it looked like it was laid out on somebody's dining room table, and the paper was a little weird. Yeah, it's a, a little bit like Be Here Now by Bob Ram Das. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if you think about it, this all is. This, uh, this, I mean, the first Earth Day was two years later, 1970. And so between 1968 and 1972, that four-year period, the whole, whole Earth notion went from quackery to kind of mainstream America. I mean, the We Earth- do need to think of the Earth as a thing now that we've seen the negative space outside it. We used to just, uh, you know— it was an assumption that, uh, yes, everything is Earth. That goes without saying. Right. It, it became a philosophy when you could see the Earth in a void and think, there's a limit to this. Yeah. There's like there's you know there's obvious connections. We ha- we're not considering it as a as a symbol or a system. Walking on the moon is the most profound, I think, example of a thing that unified everyone on the planet uh, for for a a brief moment at least of, um, you know, of awe. And I think among utopian minded people, it was inconceivable to them that this, that this vision of the earth, that this experience of having gone to the moon wouldn't eliminate war and unite all people. Uh, it's a bummer. It Cause, is. Cause it, if that picture can't do it, what can, right? But another thing Another thing that I think evolved in those four years, Stuart Brand realized that the kind of the initial um, individualism of the Back to the Land movement 
needed to give way to the communalism of the, you know, of what became kind of a commune based hippie culture. Uh, the idea that there was no individual in a back to the, in a back to nature movement. It makes sense if you're going to embrace technology that you're going to want some of the complexity, uh, the, the problem solving solutions that come with complexity. And for that, not every person can do everything. You're not going to tan your own leather and make your own honey and put up your own pairs. Right. And be the, and blacksmith, be the mayor and be right. the blacksmith. Yeah. And run the schools. Yeah. You know, you do need a, a village. And, and because of this sort of Sausalito uh, to, to uh, Palo Alto axis of yeah. people, there was, there was no anti-technology bias. So a lot of the essays in Whole Earth Catalog uh, are suggestive of how technology is going to make this possible, how new methods, new ways of thinking, which were their own technologies, are uh, – we're not trying to become – 18th century farmers, we're trying to become 21st century farmers and use all of the technology at our disposal. And so a lot of the philosophies then fed back into that burgeoning uh, computer science culture and those early computer science po- pioneers. Oh, Alexa did hear that. Those early what did, pi- you, did you say she the said, C word? Yeah, I said uh. the C word and she said, mm, I'm not sure. A lot of those computer science. Oh dear, a lot of those original CS Just say people, information science, <laughs> information science people, were very uh, influenced by the Whole Earth Catalog, and were coming from that patched dungarees culture, and so baked in a lot of um, a lot of utopian ideas to to their initial constructions, and a lot of that stuff didn't get patented, right? A lot of it. Uh, was public domain, was meant to be public domain. A lot of that stuff made it into, I mean, it's, it's Steve Jobs' aesthetic. I right. don't know if it's the effect of Apple on the world. It's, Steve, it, Steve Jobs quoted the whole Earth Catalog Oh yeah, in one of his keynote speeches and said that the, keyno- the, the whole Earth Catalog was the book that influenced him the most. But what does that mean? Like now that we no longer think of Apple and Google as just... Um, repositories for, you know, or doers of bringers of good, basically. Uh, you know, the whole earth catalog didn't actually, didn't actually change these people's or didn't change the systems at all. It, it inspired people, but the it, systems turned out to be still turned out to be pernicious. Kind of tragically people like Stuart Brand, who are, who are big thinkers and, and philosophers, um, they were not able to control the, they weren't able to saddle the dragon and, uh, and control its destiny. Stuart, um, continued to put out, uh, whole earth catalogs very sporadically and periodically, but he kept his hand in the game and started, um, started several other kind of properties. He started the coevolution quarterly, which was, I mean, so many of these things, eventually turn into kind of these ideas that we all have. Like, wouldn't it be great if there was a place where like thoughtful, educated, enlightened people could get together? I mean, it's Mensa basically like (laughs) get together and talk about ideas. It's just Mensa ends up solving puzzles. And, you know, so many of these think tanks, I mean, we, we all imagine that it's going to be the Algonquin hotel, except all they did was say mean 
to each other. Like think tanks become Ouroboroses in a way. People just sort of, I mean, the co-evolution quarterly and, uh, and Brand eventually kind of rethought it and started describing it as the whole earth discipline because in order to create this utopia, there needed to be more, um, you could, it wasn't going to happen passively. And I think brand fell out with a lot of the, the, um, not just the, the capitalists that took over, um, all the places that you could make money, but also the, the ecological, you know, the eco warriors and the, the new agers and the natural back to the landers, the organic people, because he saw so many of them were tech, were anti-technologists that they, that the environmental movement turned against nuclear power. Uh, the environmental movement and uh, the new agers turned against genetically modified foods yeah. and uh, genetic engineering and uh, geoengineering. All these things Brand believed were necessary and things to embrace. Like if you could geoengineer, why wouldn't you? If you could, if you could genetically modify foods to make them better, like that's absolutely in keeping with his kind of eco future. He wasn't he wasn't skeptical about that. No, rather far from being skeptical. Like he believes the future is. I guess if you're an optimist, then right. you know we just need to invent something to pull carbon out of the air, or like where's the nuclear power? Yeah. I mean, we uh, like the the environmental movement turned against it in the '70s because of of its danger, but its power to to eliminate pollution and revolutionize the world um, is all this now um, potential energy. It's all nascent now because we've abandoned it in large part, right? And in, abandoned its promise. So, you know, Stuart Brand is still alive. He um, he started a uh, he started a think tank called the Long Now, which is kind of a seed bank of of ideas. Um, he was he was very early on the internet. He in 1985 he had a an internet group called the Well, which oh, again funny. was. Do you, have you heard of the Well? No, but that, it's exactly what he would he would be an early adopter of of internet and and the Well was a, again a place to to. Uh, collect all the big ideas. He's 82 now. And now he has an organization called the global business network. Uh, but he hasn't sold out. It's not a, um, it's not a way to profit. Uh, it's, you know, he, it's a global business advisory group kind of trying to advise businesses on best practices. It's, it's a little bit of, I mean, it's astonishing how much influence the whole earth catalog had on what became an, a, a, an enormously diverse number of different modern writers, cultures, artists, and phenomena, thinkers, business leaders, all scientists. sort of working from the template put together in the in the mid '60s, you know, around just the transformative idea of seeing a picture of the Earth. Uh, but it's also extremely depressing how the intention got corrupted so many different ways. We got used to the picture, I guess. I mean, that's, I think that says it all, that now we just assume, yeah, 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 we get it. We're, we're a fragile, linked 
sphere, you know, cl- moisture clinging to this rocky surface. And once that becomes your default idea of the earth, it's no longer a powerful image or a motivating symbol. You know, like there was that moment of realization where people were like, oh, right. Uh, it's a fragile little ball hung. And then uh, somebody put that image on a t-shirt and they were like <laughs> 15 bucks size, small through extra large. And that concludes the whole earth catalog entry 1430.IS1426 certificate number 51410 in the omnibus. Uh, if you would like to use the internet for good utopian purposes of your own, I can suggest some places where we tried to do it in our era mm-hmm. at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, at Omnibus Project on social media, uh, the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. You can send us communiques of any kind. Uh, the Futurelings sub communities, Fora on Facebook or Reddit or Discord are fun people sharing ideas. But again, nobody's trying to change the world. They're just sending each other jokes and, and uh, far side cartoons. That's okay, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's too late to change the world, I feel like, is kind of the assumption of our age. Uh, isn't that terrible? I know. I mean, you still harbor utopian ideas, don't you? I really do. I, I do, too. It, it seems like, you know, the, the promise of technology increased the dangers, but it also should have increased the upside as well. You know, we should be able to invent transformative stuff. You just hope that they don't each get corrupted shortly after invention. We received mail. You can send us physical objects through the good old Whole Earth Catalog way. Please send us seeds and soil samples uh, and um, leather goods to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98103. Uh, You can contribute to the Patreon that keeps the Omnibus Project alive. Patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. Choose the donation level of your choice and receive the appropriate perks and rewards. This is not a... We're not asking for your charity. No, 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 no. That's we're, a, we're offering an array of... Uh, value for dollar. Absolutely. Uh, tools. Think of them as tools that we can send you to just build a better life. There you go. Don't, don't make us... I mean, we're not making you come to Menlo Park to buy these out of our truck. We could, I guess. Yeah. We'd have to buy a truck. We don't have a truck and we're not in Menlo Park. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Maybe you're all living in Menlo Park right now in a in yurts that you build yourselves, powered by solar power. Maybe you're the yurts. <laughs> the yurts <Maybe>. finally, <laughs> the yurts finally devoured their inhabitants. <laughs> we hope and pray that uh, the catastrophe that destroys us may never come. Um, you may be cheering it on. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.